Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock write-up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. Now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding Podcast. Jeffrey Gannon, Focused Compounding Podcast. How's it going today? It's going great, Andrew. How's it going with you? It is going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else. Hey, are you following me on YouTube? If not, you definitely should be. Go subscribe to it. I'm having a lot of fun doing it. Uh, if this is the first time that you are tuning in with us, we want to thank you so much. Um, we do. We write about a bunch of ideas at FocusCompounding.com. Mm-hmm. We manage capital for investors. Yes. We give out a free stock idea at FocusCompoundingGazette.com. You could get all this information uh, really on my Twitter. It's probably why I tweet right. about everything. So follow me on Twitter at FocusCompound. Uh, so in today's video, we're going to be talking about free cash flow. All right. We talk about free cash flow a lot, obviously. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, actually, we put out a document, and I did a video on this topic, how you said that you want to know that a stock will um, have free cash flow plus growth greater than 10% per year. Correct. Yes. And I thought it would be a good, uh, you know, topic to talk a little bit more about free cash flow, and we could go through an actual cash flow statement. We're sure. going to be using apples if okay. anyone wants to follow along. Uh, but maybe before jumping into that, why do you think free cash flow is the most important uh, metric? And why is there so many different definitions for it? For example, <laughs> you know, it's like Buffett always talks about o- owner's earnings, right? And which essentially is free cash flow. Okay. Um, you know, you have. Analysts sometimes they'll use EBITDA and then they'll derive a, a free cash flow number from that, or they'll mm-hmm. use net income, or they'll use operating income. Right. How do you typically think about it, and what does it mean? Uh, so I think about it the same way Buffett does, probably, which is owner earnings generally. Um, I probably use the most conservative version of free cash flow. When I re- when I actually say free cash flow on this podcast, I'm usually using the most conservative method, probably, which we'll get into, which is cash flow from operations, including changes in working capital, less all capex spending, and not crediting the company back for any disposals of their assets or anything like that. So that would probably be the toughest one. Uh, the only t- case where it wouldn't be tough is if the company is uh, like underspending mm-hmm. on um, on capex, but uh, it's the most important because that's how you really get paid over time in, in the stock market. You get paid from cash, so a company that produces cash, and that's what really matters. Uh, earnings. Uh, people talk about earnings, but earnings can come in the form of more inventory, more receivables. Uh, those aren't worth that much to you. Uh, cash, they can buy back stock and pay dividends, can acquire other things, can be used for all the stuff that makes the stock go up. So in the long run, the stock's going to go up, reflecting how much cash it can generate. Um, and, you know, that's what Buffett focuses on. Um, it's definitely the most important. Balance sheets can be important sometimes, too. Uh-huh. Why do you think investors come up with new definitions for free cash flow? Is it because of the different types of businesses? Which is true. That's a legitimate that's reason fair. for it. Yeah. But other than that, like, for example, why do you use cash flow from operations? And why do other analysts use EBITDA? Or you could even move more up the income statement. Why do they use um, EBIT minus CapEx? I mean, I've seen right. so many different variations of it, which I guess 
I mean, I understand. I think I know why they do it, but why do you think they do it? It makes it look like they have more cash flow than they do. Sure. So it's yeah. just a higher number. Yeah. Yeah. The real reason I think originally is to make bondholders believe that they could pay on um, that the bonds were very safely protected when they may not have been. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, but also in the internet age and stuff, it, it, there was some stuff where it was also because they couldn't report good earnings and stuff. So mm-hmm. they would use EBITDA. Yeah. Um, sometimes it can be close. Uh, for some companies, EBITDA minus CapEx isn't going to be that different than the number I just described. But for some companies, it's going to be very different, uh, especially like retailers and things like that. What do you think about when a business has higher net income than the cash flow from operations? That would be bad. So, uh, so we, but that's cash flow from operations, not free cash flow. Yep. So many companies, most companies, we own a few where free cash flow is actually higher than net income. That's extremely rare. Uh, so I like those. That's the best you can ever have is free cash flow exceeds net income. We love that, but it's incredibly rare. Um, more common. Why is that? Let's dive into that. Okay. So the reason that would happen is float. Okay. So you have a negative working capital cycle. Generally company, uh, your customers are paying you before you're providing services to the customer that will create, um, free cash flow that exceeds, uh, net income. The reason why free cash flow is normally lower than net income is because companies are generally growing and also just, there's just inflation. Sure. So, um, like at an average company, maybe even if it was um, its net income and its free cash flow were pretty much the same if they weren't growing, if it was in a steady state, as an economist would call it, um, you might still have uh, free cash flow that's only like 95% or 96% or something of net income because the rest has to do with the timing of things throughout the year. Sure. Um, but with a uh, company that is collecting money up front and then providing services later, as it grows, that growth will actually be added to the free cash flow throughout the year because it'll keep collecting the money throughout the year. So what'll happen is that at the end of the year, it is still collecting money for stuff that's not providing services for till next year. And so while it's growing, it'll seem to have free cash flow higher than net income. While it's shrinking, it would have the reverse. Most companies the vast, vast majority of companies you're going to look at, while they grow, they uh, that pushes down free cash flow relative to net income. And then when they were sh- shrinking, the reverse would happen and free cash flow would actually go up versus net income. You'll find a bunch of companies where like in the 2008 financial crisis or something, actually free cash flow, you go, oh, that was a pretty good year for free cash flow. The reason why is that they like cut their inventory down to the minimum they weren't reordering and sure. stuff. So they, ha- they were shrinking and that causes free cash flow to be higher than net income. And uh, I guess... To that point, right? One of the reasons when we are looking at new companies is you always take the average of three years, typically, yes. is the way that Jeff mm-hmm. does it. And Definitely. Maybe can you explain why to that? Yeah, the big reasons are um, that there's greater variation in free cash flow than there is in reported earnings, because reported earnings are smoothing out stuff that is lumpy in, in terms of the actual cash in the business being used for it. So an example would be like uh, CapEx. So for CapEx, um, you might spend, uh, a company might spend $20 million one year, and then $5 million the next year, and then $40 million the year after that. And, and another company might spend pretty even amounts. It depends on what kind of company it is. But if they're buying like big equipment or something, if they're buying, some companies buy land to do stuff on it, um, that will all uh, be very lumpy. Like you'll have to spend a lot in one year and then in the subsequent years, you don't pay much at all. Do you, do you look at the outlook that the company gives when they give any sort of guidance on how, like what percentage of revenue they're going to spend on CapEx? And do you factor that in when you're thinking about free cash flow? I look at it, but the truth is that um, if you took the very long-term average in terms of free cash flow relative to sales or to assets, um, that would give you a good idea. Um, In terms of CapEx, they may claim that they know what it is versus sales, but I don't believe them. Mm -hmm. It should be versus assets that would make the most sense. In terms of sales, it might... So what do you mean by that? uh, So the company... So... uh, 
if the company has $100 million in assets on the books at its original cost, not at its um, depreciated cost, um, then you can see that they tend and they tend to spend, let's say, $5 million a year on CapEx or whatever. Um, that seems like maintenance stuff. Then that sort of suggests that there's a 20-year life in reality to the to the assets that are there. Um, that you can use that sort of approach. So uh, CapEx versus property plan and equipment probably makes more sense. Although, like I said, you might want to adjust for the fact that you want to use the gross number instead of the net number because the net number has already been depreciated. Um, in terms of sales, that might relate more to working capital stuff, which would affect receivables and inventory. And I would say that's more accurate. If they think that a certain percent of their um, uh, of their um, cash flow from operations is going to be lower than like reported earnings or something because they're constantly building working capital, that's probably pretty accurate. So they probably know that um, we have to keep a certain amount of our inventory relative to our sales. Inventory and receivables probably track sales pretty well. Mm -hmm. Now, what about, I guess we could dive a little bit more into CapEx. Do you mm -hmm. break it down between maintenance and growth CapEx? What do you I do when that? I can. So uh, I only trust that really well in certain projections the company makes. Do you use depreciation for a proxy for that? Uh, it's more because have you ever? I've heard some investors do that. They kind of use that for between like maintenance and growth. Yeah, um, they might be right. I mean, I look at. I, Are we getting too complicated? <laughs> in it? No, no, no. Does it's it's not. Really it's not too complicated. I'm just saying, uh, in some industries, they'll be incredibly wrong, and in some they'll be fine. Yeah. Um, I, I spend a lot more time probably reading the depreciation notes than they do, uh -huh. probably. So I, I'm trying to figure out what I really think they're depreciating versus um, what is likely actually the case. Um, the depreciation note is very extensive, and uh, will give you useful lives, the method that they're using, and we could get into all that. You know, if they're doing accelerated depreciation of it, if the useful life is particularly long or short versus other companies in the industry, um, if they're assuming that it has a residual value, um, things like that. So um, if you're seeing, uh, you know, so there's some things which they're probably depreciation, depreciating too fast. So I would guess that they're probably depreciating uh, buildings too fast. Almost any company I'd see in the U.S. is depreciating buildings faster than the actual value of, of what they're uh, would be required to adjust for to replace it. Um, however, uh, they may be depreciation depreciating things like um, vehicles or something uh, slower than actually it might be, um, depending on how heavily they're using them mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, and there are companies that depreciate things based on the um, amount of production that they're doing and assign it based on that method too. So it's not all things doing like a um, uh, straight line method. Sure. So um, you look at that and you look at that note, but you can also just take anything where you have very, very long history. So if you get 15 years of history and you can compare CapEx to DNA over those 15 years and they match up, then you know if the company was growing that in reality, uh, maintenance CapEx is less than uh, depreciation and amortization. If you see the reverse, then, you know, the, then and, um, you know that it, it actually has to be more. Mostly investors assume um, that uh, DNA is more accurate and higher than it really is. In almost all assumptions I see, I almost never see someone assume something that I think is too conservative for actually what um, is left over in free cash flow. I think they almost always assume that there's less need for actual maintenance than, the, than there really is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. What do you like to see most that companies do with their free cash flow? Pay it on dividends, buy back their stock? What are your thoughts on that? 
Um, I would always prefer a stock buyback to a dividend because if I own the stock, then logically it makes sense that I would prefer the buyback to the dividend. Uh -huh. um, uh, also, I think it's more flexible. I think that paying a dividend sometimes can cause a problem for a company in terms of um, they may feel that they have to keep the dividend, whereas they don't feel like they have to keep the buyback. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I don't mind if a company piles up cash on its balance sheet. That's not necessarily a negative for a while. Um, Why is that? Uh, because that gets a lot of negative a, attention, yeah. I think, in, in the investing world. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's like, um, uh, what do they say, that um, democracy is the worst form of government except every other one? Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, piling up cash on the balance sheet is the worst use of cash of capital except for doing something stupid. And most of what the company could come up with doing today is probably stupid. Yeah. Uh -huh. So, um, you know, there are longer-term things that they could, you know, they may occasionally see opportunities. But if you told, uh, I mean, we own some company that has like $100 million in cash on its balance sheet. If you told us, okay, today figure out something smart to do with $100 million, we probably figure out something pretty stupid to do. So I don't want companies to feel pressure to do things like that. I don't mind them piling up cash for a while until there's a moment where they can use it. Uh -huh. um, yeah, if they're piling up forever and it's excessive and it doesn't need to be in the company, then it would make sense to pay it out in dividends or better yet, just do a huge buyback. What do you think about Buffett piling up the cash on his balance sheet? I think it means he doesn't have anything smart to do. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's waiting. <laughs> I Yeah, I mean, I think he... Because you know a lot of people read into that, like, oh, he's making a market call. Yeah, I think the market call is that he doesn't. There's nothing that he wants to buy at yeah. that price. There's not enough of it. Um, I don't think that he really thinks in terms of like he's trying to time the market or something. But otherwise, he would have bought more Apple or whatever if Apple stayed at the price he started buying it. Yeah, at, you know, sure. So if things went down a lot, he would buy more of them. You know, so it tells you not that their prices are too high, but at least that they're not low enough that he would buy more of them. Yeah. What are your thoughts on investing activities? That section of the cash flow statement. Like, what do you do? You like to see. Uh, so investing, investing in it, or is okay. that more of a maybe not? Because I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Right. So there's three sections to the cash flow statement that you'll see. Um, there's cash flow from operations. Yep. There's investing, and there's financing. Yep. Uh, investing, people are probably thinking of financing, but in reality, investing means capex and yeah. those sorts of things. Sure. So um, there'll be a few items in there. I don't know what's in there for Apple, but um, the the see, biggest purchase of marketable securities, proceeds okay. from maturities from marketable securities, proceeds from sales of marketable securities, uh, PP&E, uh, okay. payments made in connection with business acquisitions, right. purchase of non-marketable securities, proceeds okay. from non-marketable securities. Okay. So the things that matter are um, the acquisition of businesses, yeah. right? And I believe that will be an acquisition of business net of cash. So whatever cash they get from the business yeah. will be uh, netted back to them. So you're only seeing the amount they paid over that. And then um, the uh, capex stuff. And you also see disposals in that section of it. So if they're getting rid of things, that will also come back that way. Now, I usually ignore that. If you see calculations usually on websites and things, they're actually going to net out the capital that they spent on CapEx versus um, like if they sold off an asset. So CapEx is buying an asset. If they sold off an asset, websites will usually credit them back that amount. So weirdly, you can actually see a year in which um, CapEx, instead of being a negative number, a use of cash actually shows up as a positive number. If you ever see that, that's what it means. It means they sold something, and so they disposed of an uh -huh. asset, and that's why it happened. Um, I always just assume I focus on the CapEx. By far, the most important of those things that you said is the CapEx. For some companies, acquisitions of businesses matter, but the thing to obsess about is that the capital spending number. Sure. Know? What are your thoughts on working capital? I guess we can move a little bit that, more up. That's hugely important, and that's okay. the thing that everyone ignores. So <laughs> Why do they all ignore it? Well, I mean, for instance, let's take EBITDA. I mean, do, you think it, do you think it's very predictable? 
Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's predictable year to year, yeah. but I think a business that eats up capital and inventory and receivables is always going to in- eat it up. Okay. And I think that one that has a negative working capital cycle is always going to have a negative working capital cycle. I've rarely seen a business that was born one way and then switched how it operated that way, you know, you know that made a big difference. And for example, let's take EBITDA minus CapEx. EBITDA minus CapEx is not what's available to pay bondholders. If the company needs to increase its inventory and its receivables, which happens a lot in some companies, that is not – you can't pay your creditors in inventory and receivables. You need cash to do that. And any increase in inventory and receivables means that you have a decrease in cash relative to what you're reporting in earnings. Sure. Yeah. So your EBITDA is your earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization. It is not your earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization, but after we've bought inventory and receivables, right? Mm-hmm. You know? And so um, I – can tell you tons of companies that report good earnings but never seem to have any free cash flow and that's much less valuable than a company that constantly reports good free cash flow like the uh, the inverse of that's like amazon right yeah it produces free cash flow right. but their earnings which i think they show profit now but that's kind of more financially right. engineered like that's that. like yeah. a, a john malone company is yeah. like try not to report earnings but have a lot of free cash flow yeah that's the best then sure. you pay the least in taxes and all sorts of other ones a good source that of that's actually jeff bezos's uh letter that yeah. he wrote on that topic of focusing on free cash flow as opposed to accounting profits yeah it makes sense that a company let's say Amazon, Netflix, companies like that. If you were running them right, you probably would want to avoid reporting any sort of earnings. Now, you might have to if things go too well. Well, because then you're probably not investing enough in terms of your free cash flow, in terms of growing the business. There are huge scale advantages. So you want to use everything you can produce in cash flow to pile right back into the business, buy more content, expand. You know, in the case of Amazon, stuff expand. But in the case of Netflix, commit to more and more content to build a bigger member base that stays longer with what you're doing. Um, But you might want free cash flow. And that's the difference. Free cash flow is what the earnings really are, and that's what you need. Um, what you report in earnings is not important. It doesn't matter. And so it's fine to have no earnings if you have a lot of free cash flow. Now, it's very rare. If you look at companies that have very uh, low earnings, they're usually going to have very poor free cash flow. You're not going to find many where that's not the case. But if you find them, you should look into them more mm-hmm. because what matters is free cash flow. It does not matter what you report in your earnings general. Sure. Yeah. Let's move back down to the financing okay. activities part of uh, the cash flow statement. So mm-hmm. what do you typically look for there? Uh, I mean, are you actually investigating or is you, are you coming at it just from the perspective of just kind of seeing, I mean, like, is there anything that typically, seeing if anything jumps out at you is what I should probably say. Yeah. So generally that's the least interesting part of the statement. And for most companies, there's nothing of interest that's going to be in there. Yeah. Because for the most part, it'd be confusing things that have to do with um, stuff that you could have told from their balance sheet. Uh, it is possible to figure out some of that stuff to make, sense of it but without the balance sheet it's useless so really a focus on the balance sheet is most helpful but if you have the balance sheet plus that information then it is useful and so it just has to do with things about um wh- whether there is um uh whether they're uh for instance whether the debt's maturing and then immediately they're borrowing more mm-hmm. okay so you can see that there yeah. or that they have um if you're seeing things mature in terms of cash um that means they're probably in very short-term securities and stuff but you could tell that from looking at the balance sheet although you'd have to read the notes to the balance sheet too but actually all that stuff i get from the notes to the balance sheet so there's notes to the balance sheet about debt about what particular cash and equivalents they're in and stuff like that and that's all in the notes to the balance mm-hmm. sheet so that's more useful all the financing stuff is more useful to get from the balance sheet notes than it is from the cash flow statement when you think about 
the right multiple. Mm-hmm. And I guess I should, I should put right in like air yeah. quotes, you know, the right multiple to pay, um, you know, for free cash flow for a business. Mm-hmm. How do you typically think about it? So the most logical thing is to think about what companies have traded for in the past public companies. So the obvious one, if you want to be a little conservative, is let's say like a Schiller PE or something, they would suggest that like 16 times earnings is what they've traded at. So we said before that free cash flow is usually lower than earnings for a growing company. Most companies are growing. And also um, some companies use debt. So the PE that you're seeing, like a 16, might be a company that has some debt, and it might be a company that uh, free cash flow is less than earnings. So if instead you can say, okay, I want a company that is 16 times free cash flow in terms of enterprise value, not mm-hmm. market cap, yeah. then I'm getting a deal that's as good or better than what the market has been historically. Right. So I would say that makes sense. Uh, 16 times free cash flow. I would round it to 15. It's just an easier number to think in terms of. So 15 times free cash flow makes a lot of sense. Is what you would pay for a good business is what you're talking about? Uh, That gets complicated because it depends on the uh, working capital cycle heavily. So it depends on growth in the working capital cycle. But the truth is that let's say there was a business that would grow 6% a year forever. Yeah. Now, okay. what do you mean 6%? Earnings per share, revenue? Free cash flow. Let's say free okay, cash free flow. Cash flow right. So you have a certain amount of free cash flow, a dollar free cash flow, and it's going to grow 6% a year forever. Okay. Not for the next 10 years, the next 20 years, but forever. Um, and it requires no capital to grow. Okay. So uh, the, the net investment, the net invested capital is nil, let's say. Let's so just they say could pay out the 6%. Zero. Yeah, saying. they could pay out the 6%. No, uh, no they could grow 6% and pay out everything that they earned, the, every free cash flow they had this year. Yeah. That's so uh, they, yeah. they have a dollar yeah. free cash flow. They can pay you the dollar today. Yeah. Plus next year it'll be a dollar and six cents. Okay. Okay. Uh, that's probably worth 33 times free cash flow. Why is Thir- that? It's worth 33.33 times free cash Why is that? Uh, because a 3% yield plus 6% growth would get you a, what the return in the stock market is. So that's what it's worth. I mean, st- mathematically, you could just say that that is probably what it's worth. Uh-huh. But remember what I just did is I said the 6% is forever. Well, is it really going to be forever? How can you know that? Sure. And, stuff? Uh-huh. Um, and then I said, uh, but, but you know, 6% forever is not that different than the economy. Maybe it's 5% forever, in which case then it would be worth 25 times free cash flow instead of 33 and a third. Um, so you could say 25 times if you think it's going to grow at 5% forever. Um, and then it keeps going down from there depending on how little growth it has. But the problem, though, is that a lot of people think that they just do the calculation of here's how much it earns – and here's how much it grows. So they think that like a price to earnings growth, you know, uh, PEG, P-E-G, mm-hmm. is what you should focus on. But there's a problem with that, which is the earnings are actually being reinvested to create the growth. So what we talked about here is... So you're truly talking about a company that truly throws off cash. Yes, if it really throws off that dollar. The problem is that most companies that you're seeing that grow 15% a year throw off no cash. They um, use all of it to open their next store or whatever. So you have a chain that's growing 15% a year, but it needs to take all of its earnings to open up the next uh, the next you know locations and stuff yeah. like that. So what we're talking about here is something more like um, this might apply to Microsoft or something. It might apply to companies like that where um, subscription businesses and any companies that have float and things mm-hmm. like that. There are other companies that have float. Um, but it would be something that doesn't tie up any money in its operations, which is hard for most businesses to do. In no case will this work if you have a lot of PP&E. So uh, any company that has significant amount of property planning equipment cannot be worth um, multiples as high as what I just said. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the problem is that no one else can fund that for you. 
Um, you can borrow from a bank or something or bondholders to be able to finance a new factory, but customers aren't going to finance it for you. On the other hand, inventory and receivables, your accrued expenses and your accounts payable could be as great or greater than that. And that's where we see that coming in. And of course, deferred um, revenue, which is unearned income, basically. Mm-hmm. It's, um, you know, people are paying you up front for something. So that's the best business is if people pay you ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Your customers because pay you get that float. Time. Yeah. If customers pay you quickly and you pay suppliers slowly and you have no physical plant at all, then you could be worth a huge amount of r- relative to free cash flow if you're growing. Right at zero percent growth, it doesn't matter what if you have high returns growth or free cash flow. Growth of free cash flow. Yeah. So a company that has really great returns on equity and really poor returns on equity at zero percent growth, they're actually worth the same theoretically, because if you think about it, they would just both pay you out the free cash flow. Sure. So you have a terrible company that trades at ten times free cash flow. You have a great company that trades at ten times free cash flow. But if they both just dividend it all out to you, they're both worth the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if they both try to grow. Actually, the bad business is destroying value and the good business is creating a ton of value because the reason the bad business is destroying value, even if it grows as much as the good business, is because it's investing in inventory and receivables and property planning equipment. And so for the lines that people should focus on, it's the change in inventory, receivables, then you have CapEx, okay? And then you want to offset that with accrued expenses and accounts payable. And so you want to see which direction those are going. And you want to see how big those items are. If you're seeing, and you can just net that out by looking at uh, cash flow from operations, it's very easy to just look at cash flow from operations and see uh, by matching them each off against something. So the easiest way to do that is you would take, um, like, uh, you would take receivables and payables and match them off against each other. Uh-huh. If the number that you see in growth in receivables is exceeding payables, so let's say receivables went up thirty million dollars this year. And um, payables went up $25 million or whatever. Uh, what it'll show is it'll show receivables as uh, like a use of cash. So um, it, it may show that as like in parentheses or something, you know, if, if that's how it's prepared to show you that that uses of cash are in parentheses and that um, uh, to indicate a negative and that uh, the numbers that are a source of cash are presented uh, flat without any negative number. Um, and the payables are like 25 million instead of being 30 million, then you know that net the company had to put $5 million back into the business instead of paying it out to you. Mm-hmm. If you see receivables growing faster than payables over a few years, then that means that really, you know, customers are financed. You know, in, in that case, you have suppliers sure, financing yeah. stuff. But uh, you could see it with deposits, which would be the case with customers financing you. So you want your suppliers and your customers to be financing you, and you don't want to have to rely on banks and things like that. And the people you really don't want to have to rely on are shareholders, because we don't want to have to give them back the money. We want all that money to be paid out to us or to buy back stock mm-hmm. and things like that. I think this will make a, a pretty good video, a good YouTube video. Yeah, to, that, to, to go, go over, over the, the cash flow statement. statement. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Mr. Jeff and myself here today. Uh, definitely check out the Focus Compounding Gazette and sign up to get on that weekly idea list that goes out. Uh, Jeff wrote the last one, and then obviously we have some contributors as well that are vetted by us and yep. Jeff, mm-hmm. uh, so they all focus on overlooked stocks. Uh, follow me on uh, Twitter at Focus Compound and check out our YouTube which is Focus Compounding. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in. We will see you in the next podcast. Take care. Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock write-up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.